Tonight, Brandon Buchanan, Kennedy Cooper, Rachel Kahn, and our special guest, Corey Archibald, we're going to be taking a very deep dive. We're going in depth about one of the greatest science fiction series ever made, a franchise that really asks us to imagine a positive future for ourselves, to imagine that through strife, through difficulty, through pain, we can look inside ourselves, look inside the human spirit, and find a way out of our current malaise, reach for the stars, uh, and really become one as a human family, taking on all challenges, looking into the future, building that utopia with our bare hands. That is right. That's our galactica. Actually, Wait. I meant... I, <laughs> I mean, I meant the Orville, the greatest... <laughs> science fiction show ever made. Uh, I'm sorry, Brandon. I, you were doing so well, too. I would, Go ahead. You know, here's the thing, Rachel. You knew I was building to a punchline. You saw the windup was going that long that there was going to be a joke <laughs> at the end. And you were just like, "I whatever Brandon is going for, I've got something. <laughs> Brand, Brandon is never sincere for 60 full seconds. Something's wrong here. Exactly. <laughs> I've never been sincere for 45 seconds in a row. It just doesn't happen. So what was yours? Was it like Doctor Who or something? No, I was going to do the Orville, which... Oh, I oh okay. Just, I would just say, uh, and this is a hot take to start off the Star Trek show, I'd say the Orville in three seasons, two seasons, is arguably better than any Star Trek series that's ever been made. Whoa. What? <laughs> <laughs> get okay, it's, been, it's been fun, guys. I'm going to go ahead and go now. I'll see you later. <laughs> Oh, no. Our guest, our guest was Corey our Archibald. Was Corey, Corey Archibald. thank you so much for joining us. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this has been not safe for walks. We'll see you next time. Um, no, uh... <laughs> but but uh, we're, we're supposedly I got outvoted. Uh, the rest of the crew wanted to talk about Star Trek. So Kennedy, um, there's this Gene Roddenberry guy. He's no Seth MacFarlane, but can you talk a little bit about? The relevance of that thing that that they did was Brandon you make me want to die. I know. Well, <laughs> I, I, I just want to start off by saying uh, that you know Star Trek is this thing, and I was just saying this before the show too that like when you ask people about, well, how did you first hear about socialism, or what started you on the path to the left, or, or questions along these lines or of this nature, uh, Star Trek is a thing that will get brought up regularly. Like people will just be like. All the time, you, you'll ask people, Where, "Where's the? When's the first time you heard about socialism?" You'd be surprised how many people will say Star Trek kind of introduced me to it. And I think that it's a show that has left an impression on a lot of people of an idea for a future that's a little different. I actually saw this really funny comment while I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, where somebody said, "When are they going to make a libertarian sci-fi show?" I was like, "That's most of them." Like. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the most I feel like The Expanse would be a pretty solid contender for a libertarian show. Like the that is valid. <laughs> not like that they um like libertarian socialist though. You know what I mean? Because like they very clearly have some strong anti-capitalist messages, like in the book series at least. I don't know how much it carries over to the show, but it could very well be like ideal libertarian. Also, it's from Nevada or New Mexico, so like you know yeah shouts out libertarians bound right kennedy it, they kind of do yeah <laughs> um but yeah so you know star trek uh it presents this very interesting vision of the future um it's a very different vision than what we're presented a lot of the time um either by just sort of people talking about what we should expect in our future or even fiction. A lot of fiction does not really present something quite like this. And at the same time, Star Trek is not perfectly utopian. Uh, it's not even necessarily wholly philosophically consistent, which we'll get into, but it is something that sparks a certain kind of positive and hopeful and optimistic imagination in a lot of people. And I know it certainly did for me growing up and also as an adult. So I think that, you know, I'm not going to say that, like, I wouldn't be a socialist without Star Trek. But I think that, you know, it's certainly a thing that helped me to understand that, you know, these other things were out there. And I just want to say, and I, maybe y'all can all chime in on this, how many other sources of media especially when we were younger like now it's a little different but how many sources of media were even presenting that alternative anywhere in our lives 
Yeah, no, I, I don't, I can't think of any, honestly. I mean, I, the, you know, everything in our media landscape tends to reinforce the socioeconomic structures that have always defined our existence. And Star Trek is the one that has consistently challenged that. Usually sci-fi leaps forward into this dystopian future where everything's falling apart and every, it's kind of every person for themselves. And Star Trek is the one franchise that has consistently challenge that notion that said no like the future can be better if we you know really dramatically reimagine our priorities as a society i think that's very well put and i think um you know there's a big reason right like all of the sort of dystopian sci-fi we look at is i think at least partially intended to be cautionary you know but it's so much easier and more available to i think examine the current conditions and project the worst possible outcomes than to look at the current conditions and say okay but here's how things could get better you know um and that's like a right. basic sort of psychology tenet right like people have a much easier time envisioning things getting worse than getting better so that's part of what makes star trek like so unique and so special to me right is because you have to do extra work to imagine okay what would post scarcity look like you know what sort of societies would we form when the only thing we really had to do was determine like what we wanted to do with our lives and with ourselves and of course, one of the incredible things about the way Star Trek presents this is that uh, it's not a sort of magic bullet that comes in and creates this society. They don't discover some element that, you know, unlocks some unlimited power source that ends all strife or something like that. It is a society that is born out of strife. Uh, it is, Absolutely. you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're all probably leaning towards Deep Space Nine aficionados around here, I think, from the sounds of it, things we were discussing before we started recording. And Deep Space Nine has a pretty uh, interesting, I think it's two or three part episode, I think it's just two parts, uh, that directly addresses the sort of like break from capitalism on Earth. And it's a very, uh, it's a very harsh look. It's not looking at this and saying, oh yeah, it happened in this very peaceful, perfect, bloodless way. It happened in a way where people were being oppressed and they had to rise up against the strife. Corey, you probably know what episodes I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. You're obviously talking about past tense and referring to the bell riots. That's right. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love this so much. Let's go. Let's go. Bell oh, riots. I'm, I'm in the middle of a Deep Space Nine rewatch right now, and I actually just watched the bell riots uh, episode like a couple of days ago because uh, I've got nothing else to do right now. And it's just um, it's it's amazing how prescient it is in the current uh, political reality that we're living with right now. <laughs> Yeah, the older I get and the crazier the political times get, uh, the more every time I watch the episodes with the bell riots, I'm just like, whew, this, this is hitting. This is hitting me. It's not which decade it was going to happen in, right? You know? It's how well it's it, it's so it's scheduled for 2024. Um, and actually, I, I don't know if any of you guys are on Facebook and in, in the there's a, a huge group Star Trek shit posting. I'm a big member there. I love I love that group. Um, somebody on that group pointed out, I don't know, a few months back that August 2024 really lines up perfectly with the end of a Trump second term, which would make a hell of a lot of sense if you look at where we are. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, especially right now with the economy absolutely in shambles, uh, it's not yeah. hard to imagine a situation like what leads to the bell riots in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is, you know, basically tons of people without work and without permanent housing just being sort of displaced and shuffled around and sort of forgotten about. And uh, that's like a, that's an all too believable scenario. <laughs> I mean, it was just it was just like six months ago that Trump was like in California, I think actually even in the Bay Area, asking about converting empty warehouse space into mass housing for the homeless. <laughs> do you have a favorite series and a favorite film and why do you like them? Oh, Deep Space Nine is definitely my favorite of the Trek series. I mean, I like all of them for different reasons, and I know that's kind of a cop-out answer, but I, I, I always get kind of amused when people say, like, oh, this is the only good one, and the rest of them all suck. Like, even even characters that people say that they don't care for, I, I like all of them. I, I think every one of them brings something valuable to the universe and something something that's uh, interesting that enriches the universe of, of Star Trek. But Deep Space Nine is definitely my favorite of all of them. I am team Cisco all the way. 
say Cisco is the best captain. I will die on that hill. I think the reason why I like Deep Space Nine so much is that, you know, although there's a lot of things that I appreciate about the other series, Deep Space Nine is the one to me that most directly challenges the utopian vision of Star Trek, whereas all the other series kind of take it as a matter of fact and for granted. And it's not just about in the episodes in Deep Space Nine where they travel back in time um, and reflect on on historical events. There's even a few times where Cisco like comments on on the past institutional racism that defined so much of Earth's history prior to that point and, and why he doesn't feel like that should be forgotten. Like he's talking about that in the present tense in, in later episodes. But also just looking at how Starfleet interacts with the Dominion and the whole Dominion War arc and the Klingon War arc, it really does challenge the accepted uh, superiority <laughs> of, of the Federation and Federation values and, and just this assumption that the Federation is always right um, and, and really shows that it's much messier and that it's a, it's a reality that if we want to protect this, this kind of uh, society and this vision that we have fulfilled in this future state, like, we have to continue to fight for that. We have to continue to protect it. We have to continue to be vigilant. It's not something that we can ever just take as a matter of fact. And it's in such contrast to like the Borg, for example, you know, where like there's this very clear monolithic enemy that, you know, has no real emotional motivation behind it and becomes very easy to sort of like demonize, you know, and it, Mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine is much more of a like give and take of that sort of you know empathizing with the enemy perspective or like trying to see like how even the the Federation has fucked up and made mistakes yeah. and caused harm you know and they deal with that some in like uh, the Next Generation or in Voyager you know where they talk about like the Prime Directive but it's not nearly as you know tuned as it is in Deep Space Nine for like participating in like atrocity which is happening. Well, and even if you look at, like, say, for example, compare the Jem'Hadar to the Borg, right? As you just said, like, the Borg is this kind of monolithic enemy that's very easy to kind of disassociate yourself with, even if you take into account characters like Seven and and Hugh. But with the Jem'Hadar, like, you've got a race that has been bred to be chemically dependent to, you know, live their lives in servitude so that they can die killing people. Like, that's, if if you can't find empathy for that, and there's a whole episode Hippocratic Oath um, where Julian and, and Miles get stranded on the planet by the, the Jem'Hadar that are trying to get off the drug uh, and, and Julian wants to help them and Miles wants to escape and that really like struggles with you know those those questions of like who is really your enemy and what are we actually fighting against I, I, I that's what I love about Deep Space Nine is that it, it's constantly throwing these these questions right to the forefront and making you confront those feelings and question your assumptions I wanted to touch on the Borg actually a little bit since they got brought up because I think that's a really interesting topic. I think if you go and like sort of like look around for people talking about Star Trek online, you can find people on Quora and Reddit and Twitter debating whether Star Trek is actually socialist or if it's actually an individualist paradise, so to speak, as if those things can't possibly coexist, first of all. But also therein lies something interesting because I think the Borg, to me, have always been kind of interesting. Obviously, at times they've been presented as very one-dimensional, but especially as they've been fleshed out, they sort of provide a contrast to the idea of like absolute unity that is sort of like, in a way, it feels sort of like a criticism of some of maybe like the planned government communism that hasn't always worked out so well or something, where it's like, yeah, yeah we want to have yeah. this utopia, but also like there is a point where you've given up too much to the collective, where you no longer, you're no longer getting the benefit of that relatively utopian society. And I think that that's like a really interesting contrast. It has to do with like identity erasure, right? Like the goal, if you look at the Borg as a cautionary sort of figure, is to create that sort of unified availability of resources and universal availability of resources without erasing people's identities in the process. And that's what makes the Borg so horrifying is they take people, they take individuals and they erase them. But at the same time, they offer equality, unity. Yeah absolute security you know what i mean like there's this there's this sort of dark allure to this you know to these ideas and it's like yeah i think it provides a really interesting contrast because of course really ultimately 
And of course, this is probably maybe one of the most famous Star Trek episodes ever made. It's the Neutral Zone, I believe is the name. Picard speaks with a, you know, someone from the past and basically tells them, you know, we pursue what we want now. Obviously, that's a very individualistic kind of tenet. And I think that that's like a really fascinating, a lot of times uh, there's this tendency for people to latch on to the sort of like absolutist planned economy kind of socialism as like the only thing that can exist. And I always thought it was kind of interesting that the Federation sort of stepped a little outside of that vision. Well, I've actually heard people argue that the Federation is not socialist and that they are actually paid in the form of presumably energy credits. This is like a fan theory, by the way. This isn't like something that's been like, you know, confirmed by the creators or anything. But the sort of broad idea is that, you know, all of people's basic resources are accounted for, but they pay for things with the energy required to produce them in like the most abstracted sense. Which, I mean, like, I don't know. I think that you could have a socialist economy that still has, you know, money. I think that that makes sense as something that we could continue to do. Sure. I haven't spoken in a while, so I'd like to just come in and talk about the Orville, um, where they have... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> where they have they have a clout-based economy. And I've always assumed that the Federation kind of ran in a similar way. Like, there are credits, if you, like, watch Star Trek by osmosis, which is kind of what I did. Like, there are credits, even though there is, like, a welfare state where everybody has their stuff taken care of. But it seems like you get more stuff and ties to your reputation. And the more that you seem to be serving each other or serving society, the more reputation kind of accrues for you. So I think there is one more thing I want to talk about before we start getting into the economics. But yeah, is Star Trek a reputation-based economy? Because that's what I always assumed it was uh, growing up. I don't know. That's that's a tough one. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Because they do, like, there's a lot of different episodes that deal with rehabilitation for people that have been outcast, have done wrong in some way, and yet they are still given opportunities to, um, you know, to fully participate in the society that they have. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting concept. I hadn't thought about it in that, that way before. Hot take? Every single society, regardless of their political and economic institutions, is ultimately a clout-based economy. <laughs> There's probably yeah, definitely an argument that could be made there. That's a very hot take. I don't have a lot of argument with it because, I mean, really money is, uh, we're going to start sounding like Marianne, which isn't perfect in this situation. But a lot of our, our economic interaction is based on actualization and the degree to which you are helping someone actualize their image of themselves. And I guess Star Trek counts as part of that as well. I guess I always see it like this. I think that there's like, there's a lot of examples of like, I mean, probably one of the, the biggest, most famous examples of co-ops on our world is the Mondragon Corporation. Um, the Mondragon Corporation does not pay everyone the same exact wage. There are people, you know, team leaders, managers and presidents and such uh, within that corporation that get paid more. But the amount more that they were paid was agreed upon by everyone. And I kind of get that sense about Star Trek. It seems like maybe like some extra privilege is being given to people uh, like at certain like ranks of clout or influence or whatever but that that's sort of like within a range that's agreed upon by everyone that like yes it's okay for the captain to have a little extra access to the hollow suite than everyone else because their job fucking sucks you know <laughs> well yeah but i think it's also worth mentioning here that they are not as far as i can tell democratically electing the captain right i'm thinking of an episode um kind of early on in the next generation where one of picard's friends comes and says like i want to promote you you know it, it very clearly is the case where they have power hierarchies where people with more power get to decide who they give that power to oh absolutely so i, I wonder like how do you kind of square that you know I think whether or not you find that system ethical or enough is a tough call because I think like it's definitely it seems on paper to be more ethical than like a lot of the things that maybe we are experiencing right now. But it still also seems to maybe have its own questions. And I was going to say, even like the question of the Mondragon Corporation and how much people get paid there, not everybody agrees that that's a good thing. Some people think that everyone in a co-op should be getting the same wage. And I think that like kind of both those views might have some validity. I don't know. I think that's a really tough debate. I personally mm. think that like anything decided democratically by the people who have the immediate interests is fair game. You know, like between consenting adults, I don't fucking care. Do your thing. 
Well, and I think Starfleet itself, maybe internally it doesn't operate under democracy, but externally it seems to be accountable to like a relatively democratic society. Although the show can be very vague about the exact <laughs> nature of this relationship. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. So it leaves a lot of room to kind of imagine in either direction. Corey, if you were going to speculate, what would you speculate? From a political standpoint, I mean, we know that they have elections. And also, I think we're we're kind of defaulting to thinking about the society in Star Trek from the perspective of Earth. But we have to remember that Federation of Planets involves cultures from all kinds of different nations and, and, and worlds. And they still continue even though they're members of the federation they continue to retain their um, their basic tenets of their society they have commerce that happens um, they have elections they have elected leaders um, so i think what the federation of planets is is much closer to the un model and those things they they do have elections it's yeah there's there's not a lot of clarity brought on the political side of things because they really focus on on the service of star starfleet within the show I saw a show on Netflix called uh, The Midnight Gospel, and it kind of made me think this is kind of probably what a civilian's life is in the Star Trek universe. Just playing around <laughs> with weird technology, getting high, having long conversations with people. It, and basically, if you haven't watched The Midnight Gospel, every episode is kind of like a the main character has something like a holodeck and they go into alternate universes and they spend like half an hour podcasting from an alternate universe and just having random conversations that sounds brilliant it's very good uh it's not as it good if you've seen the movie waking life it's not that good but it's similar mm -hmm. if you like waking life you'll probably like the midnight gospel to some extent it's quite good yeah i'll have to check that out i haven't seen that one yet yeah same yeah, um, so to kind of slightly redirect, I want to talk a little bit about the storytelling mechanics of Star Trek. Infamously, writers did not always like working on the OG Star Trek and some of the next generation because Gene Roddenberry had certain rules in place about, like, conflict among crew members. Hey, this is an enlightened society, and people would not beef about that, so we don't want to have that be the focal point of an episode. Obviously, that has changed. I think more modern shows have bickering crew members and it's kind of a no like i don't know whether it's for the better or not i was never like a wild fan of star trek but i always like i get what they're doing and there are people who enjoy that kind of thing so the new ones kind of have thrown out a lot of that lack of conflict in an attempt to build some conflict so i guess is that good or bad and then we can also just kind of talk about human relationships in the world of star trek but do you guys like everyone in star trek to get along or not basically i for one hate <laughs> that they're doing gritty reboots of star trek i hate it so much it makes me so <laughs> mad because like the entire like this the spark that made star trek so special was that it was optimistic and now they're kind of just ruining it because like nobody can even imagine things being better anymore you know it's just completely yeah. gone from our culture and like the sort of background conversations that we're having this idea that things don't have to be this way that this isn't the best possible world and it makes me so mad no i can definitely feel that and I, again i want to go back to deep space nine here i think that that's yeah i don't think it's a coincidence that deep space nine had more nuanced character relationships as, as well as the latter years of, of next generation that that happened after roddenberry's passing because i think that you're right about that influence at the same time like next generation certainly remained relentlessly optimistic and i think even in all of the dark themes that were explored throughout the Deep Space Nine series, that there was still this driving force towards this optimistic view of the future and, and the better outcomes that we could be looking forward to. And I, I do agree, like there there seems to be a lot more, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like the later... Um, series seem to be more like Homeland in space than less, less uh, original Star Trek. Yeah, like propaganda, but with Starfleet uniforms. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm definitely like frustrated with the idea that this makes it more realistic. Like what's realistic is whatever we do, whatever humans are doing, that's realistic. Uh, realism honestly has very little place in storytelling most of the time anyway. People don't believe true stories all the time and they also look at fictional stories that are perfectly plausible and say there's a hole in that and it's sort of ridiculous to think that we have to you know resort to like people 
being depressed and gore and blah blah yeah. all this kind of stuff just to ha quote unquote inject some realism there's nothing unrealistic about the idea of a happy spacefaring society being our future it's one of many possibilities to be certain but it's crazy to say oh no this isn't an option we need to make it clear that actually things were bad <laughs> an entire subculture of people right now who like to put on mascot costumes and fuck each other like humans are weird <laughs> a lot of weird shit in real life it's okay we can imagine a future where we're just nice to each other yeah it's not out of bounds <laughs> yeah and those stories have been just as compelling as in fact like i would just say like the the old star trek a lot more compelling than discovery and picard but Corey, you liked all of those shows so i want to mention discovery and picard would you like to defend these cbs all access shows was there anything <laughs> that you found redeeming inside of them that people can take away as a positive I've only watched Picard, the one season of Picard, through one time. So I probably need to kind of sit with that one a little bit more. Of course, I love it just because I love Patrick Stewart. <laughs> but Discovery was hard for me at first. I, I really, I, I watched like maybe the first four or five episodes when it when the first season premiered and I just like I couldn't get over the Klingons and just the whole flashiness of it was just annoying to me but I, I gave it some time I had some distance from it and then after you know a couple of seasons were out I, I just the last few months ago went through and, and watched those two seasons straight through and once you kind of get over the whole like frustration about the way that the Klingons are depicted in the first part of, of Discovery. I still think that there is ultimately a hopeful message in there, especially when you look at the redemption arc of Michael Burnham's character, you know, that like that you can't become much more of an outcast than than she was. And you know, when you look at, at the evolution that she went through as a character and, and is still going through, I think that she's one of the most compelling characters in Star Trek. And I think it carries carries a lot of, of weight with the series itself. So this is maybe a good time to mention that if anybody has like a CBS All Access login they want to give me, like just hit me up. <laughs> like a professional technology wizard. Don't you know how to use torrents? I mean, yeah, but like I don't I can't be fucked to do it. Like <laughs> So send burn the DVDs and send them to Rachel in the mail. <laughs> Listen, Brandon. Record them to VHS tape so it feels more like watching old Star Trek, even though it's new Star Trek. Hear me out on this one, y'all. It's like a niche market where we just do that. We record like existing Star Trek to VHSs and sell them. Is that boom? True? It's probably boom. Very people. Oh. That would that would sell like hotcakes. Of course, you would be well, shut down almost immediately. Yeah, we'll make a million dollars uh, and go to jail. Is what I'm we'll hearing. Just, <laughs> send us to jail, okay? They'll give us a cease and desist and fine us. I don't know. That guy that was pirating, quote unquote, pirating Microsoft shit went to jail. Remember that? Yeah, but no, we're just doing it as pastiche. It's pa see, we're doing it. It's fair use because by putting it on the VHS, we're making a joke, which makes it fair use. Ah. Ah. <laughs> It's what once something's recorded onto VHS in 2020, it's automatically ironic. It's automatically <laughs> right. Uh, what we should do, and this would have no legal problems, we should take all of our podcast episodes and put them on cassette tape. Um, and that way, <laughs> a real vintage experience. And that'll be rad too. I, I mean, I don't know why you don't just go full, full bore and go straight back to A track. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Let's talk about this. Uh, we have other races in Star Trek, and I really, me, I'm more fascinated in the writing, the con like how to handle the concept of how do you write a utopia in a way that it remains interesting just as a story. And I think the other races in Star Trek are kind of shorthand for different stages of human development or human problems sure. that have bugged us to this day. So like the Klingons are like our medieval selves. It's like the honor-based society. It's the simplicity of violence, etc. Um, you have like the Romulans who are kind of like that Bronze Age. Like they think that they are like logical, intelligent, things like that. But they also have their own societal problems uh and paranoia and things like that and we also have like the ferengi who are kind of like us now just like late mm -hmm. stage capitalism sell yep. your grandma for a dollar 
Um, I love the Ferengi so much, by the way. Like, I, do too. I love them so much. Like they are they are the United States' collective id, you know? Like that's it. That's like if you took the worst parts of the United States and distilled it down into a single character, like it's Quark, you know? And yet when Quark goes back to past Earth, he's horrified that the humans did nuclear testing on their yes. own planet. So even and smokes <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So we're we're actually maybe about like a few degrees worse, especially considering that Trump right now is talking about doing some brand new nuclear testing. Like, <laughs> well, there's a whole speech. There's a whole speech that that Quark gives Cisco when they're when they're being detained by the Jem'Hadar at one point, where he says that you know basically humans don't like Ferengi because we remind you of what you used to be, but we actually never did a lot of the things that you ever did. We never had global nuclear war. We never dead you know concentration camps like we're we're not just you know reminders of what you used to be we're actually better than you ever were <laughs> and right. you know i mean there's a lot of problems with frankie society we can talk about the institutional misogyny we can talk about a lot of problems with frankie society but i will say that frankie capitalism has i think more guiding principles than american capitalism does i think it's 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 like capitalism under andrew yang's presidency in 2024 <laughs> <laughs> so who, uh, this is like a fun game we should play who would whose candidates be like who would jean-luc picard have been voting for in the primary <laughs> oh man that's a tough one i think picard obviously a bernie voter right no it is one warren honestly you think so i, I was i was gonna say maybe booty judge <laughs> <laughs> yeah I could see it. I could see it. Like progressive, but not that progressive. Yeah, well, because he's because he definitely is like in in favor of of social order and you know maintaining rank and I, I, I could see him being a Buddha judge guy. I could also see that. I think Janeway would definitely have gone for Warren. Like definitely. <laughs> no way. No, so. no. 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 I want to disagree hard. Janeway no. would have been K Hive. Oh, wow. Oh, that's true. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the fact that we have three very different answers, because Rachel said Warren, Kennedy said Kamala, and I said Tulsi, really points to how inconsistently Janeway was written. Because we're all yeah. right. It depends on the yeah. episode. <laughs> I don't think it's fair to say that she was necessarily inconsistently written. I think Janeway herself is a slightly inconsistent character. And it's actually one of the things I like about her as a captain. And it part of it is, you know, in Voyager, of course, they're under this intense pressure environment that none of the other Star Trek series like crews are experiencing um, on all of the other Star Trek series. They can go home to their families or whatever, or go for some leave on a, on one of the pleasure planets and uh, etc. On Voyager, like they literally can't stop doing their jobs for one day sometimes. Um, I, I'm going to have to go with Brandon <laughs> on this one. I, th I, I actually think Tulsi is the right answer for Janeway because <laughs> she is the kind of person who like she'll she'll be all high minded. And, and I say this as a huge Janeway fan. Janeway is my second favorite captain, which is an, un an unpopular opinion because most people think Picard should be one or two. I also love Janeway. Yeah, but I, you know, yeah, as her character watch. is presented and the kinds of challenges that she faces and the way she approaches problem solving, I think she's the kind of person that, yeah, I've got my principles and I'll lecture you about my principles. But the minute those principles get in the way of something that I think has to be done, that I think is the, the correct choice for the moment, I'll throw those principles aside in a friggin' second. Let's talk about Tuvok for a second. <laughs> <laughs> like, who would Tuvok have? <laughs> yeah no 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 the two the i'm sorry two vix not not two uh, yeah. so the neelix neelix tuvok hybrid and and her decision to uh assassinate him so that she could have her two crew members back like that's a a hard call that somebody has to make that definitely challenges your principles about the sanctity of life you know so definitely I think that often too like they routinely had her in the position where she had to decide who would live and who would die often with yep. Neelix specifically which was weird <laughs> like, i don't know why Neelix was just the sacrificial lamb for all of these moral quandaries but it <laughs> multiple times yeah, uh, yeah voyager definitely had a thing going on where it was like oh something weird's about to happen uh-oh neelix you're standing in front of the weird thing beam aren't you uh <laughs> but Okay, I wanted to say, and this is not just me 
uh, necessarily being biased, I would hope, but I think that Cisco would have been a Marianne voter. And let me tell you, it's because <laughs> think about it. He he is woo as shit. He's so <laughs> he's so into woo. I think I think you're right on that. I think yeah. I mean, the orbs obviously would have told him that that's what he needed to do. And now we're assuming that he even escapes the the, the temple in the wormhole long enough to uh, participate in an election. <laughs> I just, that none of us are talking about Kirk because we all know Kirk would have voted for Biden, and it's making us all sad. No, actually, I I want to make the case that Kirk would have been the Bernie voter. You think so? No, yeah. I think Kirk would have gone Trump because he has that like cowboy shit going on. He doesn't really respect anybody. He just likes the party. Like I, I'm I'm more inclined to go Trump. Like so, that actually might maybe be making a case for Kirk being a, a a Bernie voter because there were those people in 2016 True. that supported supported yeah. Bernie and then switched I to Trump like in a, the a Rogan. A Rogan. I was about to say Kirk's a yeah. Joe Rogan progressive for sure. Yeah, okay, I can uh, see that. <laughs> Totally, I can do He's that. like a healthcare chud. He doesn't look. First of all, <laughs> Kirk is—he takes way too many chances with a certain kind of health risk. If you know what I'm saying, uh, to, to not want universal healthcare, he—he he needs to be able to to go go see the doc after a Let's night on the go. town without worrying about the the cost. And uh, <laughs> but yeah, he he ta he takes me as the type that just like he wants like a vague idea of progressivism, especially because he lives in it and he likes it. But he does he doesn't necessarily understand like intersectionality or like he's never read theory. Kirk doesn't read theory. Um, <laughs> yeah, Kirk is one of those like types who would be like, yeah, of course I'm a feminist. I love females. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, I'd like you to I'd like you to do that again, but do it with the Captain Kirk voice. <laughs> I don't know if I can just pull a Kirk out. It makes me I know that I'm a big deal kind of feminist, but I love females. <laughs> that became slightly of a robot, but yeah. Oh god. I'm not sure about trans rights. Okay, wait, I got now, based on my last little thought there, now I want to ask everybody a new question. Which which of the captains read theory? <laughs> Obviously, Picard reads theory. Like, he talks about reading theory. I think Janeway does. She's the most scientific of, of all the captains, so. I think we've got the whole list, because I don't, I don't yeah. see Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, Cisco seems more like the type that would read poetry being critical of theory. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we didn't talk about Pike. Um, who who would Pike vote for in 2020? Trump. <laughs> you think yeah, so? Pike Trump, yeah, kind of. Wow, okay. Who do you think? I was thinking he might be the Bernie guy. Yeah, well, you know, we can't have, like, two wild card Bernie, like, Rogan progressives in a row. You gotta, like, <laughs> you gotta separate them a little. Like, if not for what is true, for what is interesting to listen to. <laughs> Uh, Pike, no, Pike voted for John Delaney. Oh. <laughs> he he heard John that Delaney. national service program and he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm in with that. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> we were refreshing the brand new Congress page every day, uh, waiting for that Delaney endorsement and it never came. We were very disappointed. Yeah, well, you know, sorry, sorry, Team Delaney, but we uh, we made a conscientious decision to stay out of presidential no endorsements because we're focused on Congress. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you gave John Delaney such a diplomatic answer. You you're truly a saint, Corey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I wanted to talk a little bit about like the future as the end of history and like we kind of already like touched on this in certain respects and how we've been talking about Star Trek in general but like I think a lot of times people imagine certain things like the concept of post-scarcity is there even such a thing as like a complete post-scarcity or what does post-scarcity even mean like when people say that a lot of times they have this vision in their mind of like you know everything literally everything is available but of course in Star Trek this is not actually truly the case post-scarcity just means that things are generally like most things are freely available and like that there's still progress to be made in that regard is something that is occasionally addressed in certain episodes well like people would argue that we're already post-scarcity now and that all scarcity at this point is like manufactured you know so i, sure. I don't know. to what extent you know what is scarcity only about people's physical needs 
Is it about their emotional needs? Is it about their access to, you know, enrichment? Like what what defines a necessary resource in the first place, you know? Well, if we're thinking about basic necessities that you need for life, I mean, Trek certainly does represent that. You've got the replicators that can produce everything from, you know, the, the nourishment that you require to the clothes that you want to wear. And you have other options to procure those things. But, you know, if you need it, it can be produced by the replicator. It, but it has less to do with the amount of stuff that's available and more about people's mindset about how much they need. And that's really what defines the Trek philosophy is that there's been this fundamental reordering that, that's occurred somewhere along the way where people have just decided that they don't need as much shit and like I don't have to go out and keep acquiring all kinds of things. Um, I don't need to put so, so much stuff in my house. So, so I think that's that's really what it reminds it to me. Like if I could every single time I needed like a Swiffer or something, just click a button and there is a Swiffer, I would have a much smaller place, you know, but because I can only have one Swiffer and I don't want to keep buying it constantly, I have to have a closet to put my Swiffer in, right? And I think that that sort of ability to generate anything on demand is a huge part of how they can have that mindset shift because they don't ever really have to wonder, will I be able to get this again? And you see that a lot um, with like, class stratification now you know people who are poor are much more likely to have like bigger stocks of things and have more trouble with like you know getting rid of things because of that fear compared to like rich people are now their whole thing is like minimalism it's like oh i want to have as little as possible and it's like well yeah because you can throw that you know cookie cutter or whatever away and buy another one next week when you need it yeah yeah, I mean, it's not—it's hard not to want to accumulate whatever assets you can when your options for that are limited. So I yeah. think that, you know, that's kind of like a natural inclination. I'll also say in regards to the replicators, it's not just their ability to make anything, but it's also their ability to unmake anything, I think, in yeah. a way that, that creates some of the simplicity. Like, if I could just stick whatever board game, you know, me and my friends were playing last week, not right now, obviously, because we're quarantined, but in general, um, <laughs> into uh the replicator and have it produce a different board game then i would only ever have one board game on the shelf right like why you right. know why would i have more than that you know i think that that whole yeah that whole system it definitely invites a kind of simplicity that is sort of hard much harder to achieve in our actual reality where we live um and where 3d printers do exist but let me tell you as somebody who has one it's very cool but it's not it's extremely primitive compared, not, to, it's not a compared to Star Trek. Come on, we're, we are a long ways, folks. So are you saying you've not yet been able to replicate a, a Klingon disruptor? <laughs> no. I did print a bust of Lenin, though, because I'm a dork. Uh, <laughs> very large bust. I was pretty impressed. Not very large. I don't want to make it sound like you have a shrine, but, you know. Kennedy, 10 bust picks. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we never mentioned this but what's your favorite star trek film because i feel like a lot of the ideas that we talk about here don't always fit into the two-hour format of like an adventure story there's explosions or whatever you're not allowed to say wrath of khan <laughs> no actually what? i am I'm I'm unfortunately I have I'm not as up on my on my films as I should be like I've seen a lot of them but I've seen most of them I've seen like a long time ago um, I haven't seen but a couple of the newer ones and I have this kind of brain that if I haven't watched it recently I, I tend to forget like wash out a lot of the details which makes it really easy for me to rewatch something many many times so I've been more like the last probably five years I've been just completely consumed with rewatching the series of over and over again and haven't been watching the films as much love to switch brains with you because i i retain things a little bit more so like <laughs> once i watch something once it's like well i did that what else you got world yeah my husband's like that so like i'm always like excited when an episode that i like that comes back on i'm like oh you should watch this one with me you liked it too and he's like no i remember everything that happened i'm like no but it's still good we should watch it again <laughs> I have that same conversation with my partner. She'll she'll be like, "Let's watch this again." I'll be like, "We watched it two years ago. I remember every scene." Uh, <laughs> you got You got to wait like three three to seven more years. Then I'll be interested. Yeah, my cycle has been like every five years since college. I have rewatched the Star Trek shows, and it's like just long enough that I only remember some of them, like shot for yeah. shot. 
there's something about Star Trek Deep Space Nine for me. I don't know what it is, but no matter how many times I watch it, uh, it never gets super boring. Like I, I'll I'll get bored of it for a little while, but it never lasts. I'm always I'm always willing to watch that again. The storytelling was just so compelling in that series. And also, yeah. I'm just a space nerd. And if you're a space totally. nerd, Deep Space Nine was really good. <laughs> Kennedy and Absolutely. Rachel, do y'all do y'all two have favorite Star Trek feature length films? Obviously, mine is Wrath of Khan. That's not like I You're I have spent my entire to. life having people shake their fist and yell Khan at me, and my I God. love that. <laughs> I was gonna say you're not allowed to say Wrath of Khan, but given that that is your yeah, name, no, that's mine. That that's my word, Brandon. That's right. That's my word. All right, you, you are valid, Kennedy. You're not valid. You have to say a non Wrath of Khan movie. So go for it. It's hard for me to like say one of them in particular, but I kind of like the Borg Picard arc of films. Like First Contact was okay. All the Star Trek films kind of suck to some yeah. extent. Like they, <laughs> they, they all have their kind of ups and downs. There's never been like a 10 out of 10 Star Trek film. There's never been a 9 out of 10. There's probably never been an 8 out of 10 Star Trek film. <laughs> um, I'd say Wrath of Khan is a solid 8 out of 10. Okay, Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan is, is, the, is the 8 out of 10 and everything else <laughs> falls below that somewhere on the scale. I uh I was actually doing a bit earlier. I really liked First Contact. I liked First Contact. Oh, I'm glad you agree with me. Okay, yeah. I I was like hoping I wasn't just shooting in the dark with that one as a as like I thought it was kind of good. I thought you know it. Yeah, I thought First Contact was really interesting. Actually. It was kind it was kind of weird and dark and had all these bizarre themes and uh, I was kind of into it. So I I don't know. Uh, I, I will just say this too, for the record, um, because I'd like to do this any chance I can get. Fuck J.J. Abrams forever. You suck. <laughs> I hate you. Fight me in real life. I cannot believe how badly you've butchered everything you've ever done, to be honest, but especially the Star Trek films. The modern Star <laughs> Trek films are just unbearable to be. <laughs> Actually, I was going to have a hot take and say my favorite non-Wrath of Khan Star Trek film was Beyond. The most <laughs> of course recent. you are. Of course you are. That was, that We're going to talk about bullshit again is what it is. All right, I got a, I've got a question for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Which, which doctor would have already found a vaccine for COVID-19? And which was the best? I mean, obviously the doctor, like from Voyager. Yeah, that's my vote too. <laughs> EMH is the best. But no, no, specifically the Dr. Mark II as played by Andy Dick. <laughs> no! Kennedy, can I talk to you here for a second? Uh, I want a divorce. <laughs> no, actually, my real my real non ship post answer would actually have to be uh, Julian Bashir. He was a genius. He was really good at solving new medical problems, and I think that he he would have cured COVID in like five days or less. Like he he just would have been like just on it in the lab nonstop, not yeah. sleeping, and it would have gotten done. And honestly, even if uh, even if he didn't succeed, I would still watch him do it because he's very attractive. So hot. <laughs> <laughs> and so like those are those are my two top contenders as well for finding the vaccine. I would say that I think EMH edges out Julian only because Julian is still human, even though he is genius. And so he has to sleep at some point, whereas the EMH can just work straight through. So. Yeah, but Julian literally took the job on Deep Space Nine to do frontier medicine. Like, his passion is having an outbreak of a new disease, basically. Well, yeah. And the EMH has the knowledge of Julian as well as every True. other doctor. It did, scan, it did scan his brain specifically. That's an episode. Um, the EMH didn't really take the job at all. It just sort of happened to him. It? It just happened, is my point. Yes. The EMH, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. he didn't show up and say, "I want this job." He was just written as a program and came into being through like repeated attempts at solving problems. I hate to tell you all this, we are already closing in on an hour. Uh, we could what? probably do a whole nother episode just on the EMH. I think. <laughs> oh, for sure. Like, how Star Trek deals with the question of like sentience and agency and like all of that shit. We should come back and talk oh, about. Oh yeah, that too. absolutely. 
we might have to turn this into like a, a little series where every few months we bring Corey back and we talk about Star Trek again because this is too much Hell material yeah. here. This is way too much. <laughs> I, I just I just want to give a quick shout out to the doctor from the Orville for uh, falling in love with a genocidal robot. <laughs> Uh, and using the power of love to very narrowly save the human race. We'll see what the fallout of that will be in season three. We love you, Seth MacFarlane. What a genius. What a genius. <laughs> Fuck Seth MacFarlane. I hate him. But I hate Seth MacFarlane the way Kennedy hates J.J. Abrams. Uh, I hate in real life. Yeah. Fucking fuck. I hate you. Your voice isn't even that good. And yeah. I will punch you in the throat so hard that you don't have one anymore. Thank well, you. Well, first of all, first of all, you're clearly not living up to the ideals of Starfleet. Second of all, <laughs> you gotta watch the Orville. It's really great. <laughs> it's funny that you say that about not living up to the ideals of Starfleet. Like there's so many times when my husband and I are watching the show together that we, we look at something that the, one of the characters is doing and, and he'll he would say, like, I would just shoot him. I wouldn't even give him a chance. And I would say, Yeah, I would too. That's why we we would never make it in Starfleet. <laughs> Once you become an admiral, you can do whatever you want. So even Starfleet, well, even Starfleet doesn't live up to the ideas of Starfleet. That's true. Nobody do. <laughs> Corey Archibald, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. For a absolute blast of a time. Corey Archibald, of course, is the chair of Brand New Congress. Corey, tell everybody where they can find you on the internet and how they can get involved with Brand New Congress after they've listened to this whole episode about Star Trek. And now for some reason, they're just ready to volunteer for Brand New Congress. <laughs> well, and they should. They should want to volunteer for Brand New Congress because we're all huge Trekkies. And we actually have a whole channel in our Slack that's just dedicated for sharing memes and talking about Star Trek. So oh. Oh, damn. A lot of good, fun stuff to do. No, so you can find us at brandnewcongress.org. You can sign up for our newsletter there. You can check out which candidates we're supporting for 2020. We've got a crap ton of primaries coming up in June. Just so freaking many of them, including all of our New York City candidates, which are uh, happening at the end of June. There's just a lot going on with us right now. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram at, under Brand New Congress and on Twitter at Brand New 535. Um, really would love to have you follow join the conversation you know share your support a lot of really exciting things happening and really great people that are running for office that we're proud to support all right folks if you don't follow us on twitter we are at nsf wonks and the fun never stops over there we're always doing something interesting uh we've been doing a lot of streaming over there lately uh you can also catch that on our youtube uh, which I don't know the link to. We don't have a fancy custom link yet because we need more subscribers. So, you know, subscribe to our YouTube, you know, if you want to do something nice for us because you enjoy the show so much, just just go over there and hit that subscribe button on YouTube if you can find our channel because it makes a big difference. You can just search for Not Safer Wonks over there. And uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>